what's it like to work as a doctor in Australia? How much do doctors get paid in Australia? What are their working hours like? And is there any downsides to working in Australia as a doctor? Today, we catch up with a good friend of mine called Dr. Sam Gluck, who's a UK trained doctor. I actually did our F1 together and he moved to Australia just for a one year trial. And that was about 10 years ago. So you're going to find out why a one year trial became a 10 year move that he still lives in Australia. And he's got some really interesting viewpoints about the differences between working in Australia as a doctor and for patients. And we do talk about how much doctors in Australia get paid. And for the UK doctors, that bit is going to be really painful for you. I can assure you, I was actually surprised myself. Uh, he also talks about the challenges of working in Australia. So if you've ever wondered about doing an F3 or emigrating or working in another country, uh, this is a great way for you to find out in an unfiltered way exactly what it's like. Welcome to the Medics Money Podcast. My name is Dr. Tommy Perkins and I'm a GP. And my name is Dr. Ed Cantelo, a GP, but also a chartered accountant and a chartered tax advisor. And yes, you did hear that right. Not only is Ed a doctor, he's also a chartered accountant and a tax advisor. Medics Money empowers doctors and other professionals like you to make better financial decisions. So today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Sam Gluck, who is a friend of mine, and we actually did F1 together. But since then, it's been a while since we caught up, Sam. So why don't you bring me and the listeners up to speed with who you are and what you've been up to? Okay. Um, so I'm sitting here looking at the increasingly balding patch on the top of my head. Um, compared to Tommy's endless um, sort of luscious locks, I suppose, um, <laughs> and thinking this, I've aged badly. Um, so yes, we we did F1 together in Jersey, um, and then I stayed in Jersey and did F2, um, and then went off to Portsmouth and did ACCS anaesthetics, and then escaped the NHS for a year's sabbatical in Australia. Um, I think the year's sabbatical was in 2013, um, and we came to Australia, aimed for Melbourne and missed, and ended up in Adelaide. Um, and that sort of turned into 18 months, which turned into two years, which is now seven and a half years ago. Um, and so my then girlfriend, um, now mother of two children um, and wife, came with me. And um, it took a while, I think, to persuade her that Australia was the right place for us. But um, but yeah, that's certainly certainly where we've ended up, and we're pretty well um, fully committed to staying with at least two houses, two cats, and two children um, who are both Australian, um, and we're now Australian, and so we have dual citizenship. Um, and yeah, it's it's pretty good. Um, I certainly don't long for days back in the NHS. Um, although the distance to family does sometimes become a little bit frustrating. Yeah, especially in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, so we've got lots to discuss today. Um, and I feel like I know uh, you and Sam really well because uh, I was fortunate enough to live below you in Jersey in a flat <laughs> at, at the start of your relationship. So um, we know each other really well. Um, okay, <laughs> so you talked a bit like how you followed the usual training path, did F1, F2, went into ACCS anaesthetics, and then uh, you just decided to go to Australia. So do you want to talk a bit about why you decided to move to Australia and 
why you've stayed there because you were only going to go for one year and the number of my friends who have said, oh, we're going to Australia for one year and um, they've never come back. So talk to us about that. Yep. So I had um, failed my anaesthetic primary exam and so I was in the position where although I had passed it before um, the sort of the new job starting, I hadn't passed it by the time the job applications were in and for the year that I happened to be heading for ST3, it was the one year they decided that that would be a restriction on heading into ST3, um, which meant that I had to find something to do. Um, And so I'd always been interested in spending some time abroad. Um, I'd actually been interested in going off to the South Pole, um, as some of our colleagues have done. or going to do some sort of MSF work or something like that. Anyway, I couldn't persuade my then girlfriend that she would want to be shot at me for 12 months while I lived in Antarctica. Um, and she wasn't so keen on roughing it somewhere in Africa. We should ask um, her now whether she'd be shot of you for a year in Antarctica. Maybe the answer will be different, do you reckon? Um, it's a little bit closer to us now, so yeah, maybe. maybe. Good point, good point. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, carry on. No, no. Um, so and so I sort of persuaded her that maybe we could do a year in Australia um, and so had sorted out a job at the Royal Melbourne um, doing ICU, which fell through when it turns out that Melbourne wasn't an area of need or something and they couldn't get me a visa. So we sort of phoned around all the intensive care units um, around Australia trying to get a job. Um, I say we, I, the Royal we, um, me and my wife. Um and were unsuccessful, nothing really coming. And I was looking sort of at country, country Australia jobs. So I was looking at jobs in places like Gosford, Mount Gambia, um, Broken Hill. These, these make me cringe now thinking about the fact that I almost took a job in, job in these places. Um, so we were close to taking a job in Gosford, which is sort of, I suppose, 60 minutes north of Sydney. Um, and um, fortunately, just before I accepted it, the Royal Adelaide called me up and said, um, are you still interested in that job? We've got a position. Um, and I jumped to the opportunity and we ended up in Adelaide. And it's the best thing that ever happened. Um, so Adelaide is flat, leafy, um, sprawling suburbs um, and has a huge beachfront. Um, and so we live by the beach. We're literally two rows back from the beach. Um, and it's sort of a 20-minute drive into the city from where we are. Um, and we live that beach style life. Yeah, I mean, that sounds awesome. You're living the Australian dream there. But um, yeah, obviously, it's all right, because you only went there for a year, and you're basically never coming back. But uh, tell me about uh, work in Australia, because uh, I think it's quite different from here. So like a day in the life of an Australian doctor, if you will. Mm. So um, I suppose it's, I mean, it's really from a, from a, the differences are really on how you log, you log your hours and how you're paid. And so you effectively fill in a timesheet which says, I worked these hours. Um, if that happens to take you into overtime, they pay you overtime rates. If you're working out of hours, you get paid for working out of hours. Um, and certain hours attract penalties. Um, and so getting your head around all of that was an interesting transition from NHS work. Um, I they quickly joined the union and to try to understand the pay system and how things worked. And it took a while to get my head around it. And I'm now sitting here as the vice president of um, SASMO, which is our, um, our South Australian medical union. 
Um, so I suppose I would say I'm actively involved in stuff like that. Um, but day in a life, um, we work a 76 hour fortnight. So you have a lot more time off than you do back home. And when you work a 76 hour fortnight, you work a 76 hour fortnight. If you work overtime, you get paid for the overtime. Um, but that costs the system. And so they try to not lost you over time, which is quite nice. Um, so it means you get lots of time with family, lots of time to do stuff. Um, we spent our first year um, doing sort of seven days on and then exploring Australia for seven days and then coming back and doing seven days on. And then they changed our rostering pattern so you could do sort of 14 days on and 14 days off. And so you'd have you'd do two weeks of work and then you'd have a two-week holiday. Um, and it was awesome. Um, and so we went up to um where do we we end up to darwin we went through kakadu we went um hunter valley went down great ocean road to melbourne um went over to new zealand vietnam cambodia um and so just enjoyed thinking we're here for 12 months we're going to explore southeast asia um and australia um and take advantage of that i mean like an australian would if they came to london yeah yeah um, uh, and no kids right so and yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, those were the days. I, I've just um, realized that um, even though it's, it's yeah. Wednesday today and I've already worked more hours this week uh, than an Australian doctor does in a, in a whole week, um, that's making yeah. me a bit sad. Sorry. But Sorry. yeah. Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, wow. Medicine per se is pretty similar. Um, I mean, it's, it's probably a little bit better funded than the NHS's. We have um a huge private system and so effectively it sort of it sort of works out that if your joint income is over a certain threshold um it's cheaper for you to have health insurance um, than to pay a levy for not having health insurance and so what that means is that a huge swathe of the population have health insurance and they use it which means they're it probably 50 percent of the medicine is done in private and 50 percent of the medicine is done in public um which means there's a huge private sector which means that the public sector lean on the private sector to get extra bits of work done and if our elective lists are pushing out then we push patients over into private um, and sort of that benefits both systems it probably has knock-on effects um, of um, using sort of the the mbs system which basically means it's a fee per service system means that we probably over service a little bit um, and we probably do some things that we're probably considered low value care that wouldn't sort of get through the NHS um, sort of um, governance structure. Yeah. Um, but but it, it, it happens here. Um, it's not necessarily great for patients, but it means that if from a public sector point of view, you're not working full time, there's always shifts to be had in a private system. Um, and so you can go and do sort of the odd private shift um, at sort of twice your hourly rate. Um, to earn some extra cash if you wanted. Yeah. So we touched on it a bit there, but for those of us uh, that are not 100% au fait with the setup, you kind of have part public, part private. And then it medi what's Medicare? Because I hear about Medicare a lot. Yeah, yeah. How does it work? Uh, the, the public system is based on activity-based funding. And so that means that a hospital is commissioned to do a certain amount of activity and they get funded for that. If the, if the complexity of that work is higher then they get an extra tariff for the complexity. If they get hospital-acquired complications, then they get penalised for um, for those hospital-acquired complications. If they get readmissions again, there's penalties associated with those kind of things. And so that's how the public system is funded. 
Um, the private system is funded um, basically federally, um, and so um, what and what happens basically is that there is a, a coding system that says if you do this procedure, you will get paid this much for doing so, um, and so you can pick up funding that way. Um, in fact, there's doctors who work in the pri- in the public system who are also fu- who fund their clinics via a Medicare system. Um, although the, it's, the politics of that is starting to get a little bit complicated. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, good. Good explanation of how it works. So we've already established that you live by the beach. Uh, you work a thirty-eight hour week, and if you do overtime or anything extra, you get paid extra. Um, mm-hmm. So talk to me about how much an average Australian consultant and GP and junior doctor would make. <laughs> okay, um, so sorry, this will make you all feel a little bit sick. Um, so I turned up here as a PGY5 registrar. I was earning, um, I think in my first year here, I earned about $130,000. Um, so you can pretty well halve that um, into pounds. Um, and so, so sorry. What level is is that? Like an ST? What in the UK would that be? Uh, like ST three or? Yeah. So I, well, I left. I left as I was about to head in. Would have been heading into ST three. Okay. So yeah. So as as an ST three, you on sixty five thousand Australian and working thirty eight hour weeks. Is that right? Uh, no, earning sorry, earning one hundred and twenty. One hundred thirty Australian, sixty five ish, whatever UK. Yes. Wow. Uh, okay. You're right. We don't want to hear it. So tell us about consultants, GPs, or yeah, just tell us more bad news. <laughs> okay. So um, so consultants tend to work part-time in the public system and part-time in the private system, even the intensive care doctors. I mean, so for example, Adelaide, which has a population of uh, just over a million, has five cardiothoracic centers, two public and three private. And so the cardiothoracic workload is what earns intensive care doctors their money really um and so um they they do sort of i don't know say 0.6 in the public system and then they might do 10 weeks a year in private um the private system is obviously variable depending on how busy you are but a busy unit you could be earning 80 grand a week um and they'd be taking home as a full-time um, consultant somewhere in the region of three hundred and fifty to four hundred thousand a year um, from the public system. So they they reduce their FTE in public to earn the extra dollars in in private. So sorry. So they take. So you said take home three fifty. Yeah. Take home after tax. I uh, no. It would probably be before. It would be before okay. Tax. But still okay. So so. So your average Australian ITU consultant is on three hundred and fifty thousand Australian dollars a year. No, they'd be on more than that. So they'll work part time in public. So they'll okay. say take home. Yep. They'll take home two hundred thousand from the public system. Yeah. And then they will do I don't know ten weeks a year at eighty thousand. Wow. So you could easily half a million dollars, right? Easily, yes. Wow. Um, okay. Tell me, <laughs> I'm interested in this next bit. Uh, tell me how much a typical, a typical GP. So I think the average salary for a GP in the UK, I looked at this the other day, I think it's around 103,000 pounds, uh, the average okay. for a GP. If I move to Australia as a fully qualified GP, um, what, what am I going to be earning? So I don't, I don't know to tell you the truth, Tommy. Um, the, the, the difficulty is that it's all based on how you bill. And so 
you were basic you basically bill for a consultation now as as a as a member of the public if i go to a gp i'll often be charged a gap and have to pay 60 bucks to see a gp um and they will claim back the medicare allowance um or the medicare you claim back the medicare element of that which i have to tell you the truth i have no idea what that is um but if you have complex health problems then you'll have a complex health plan in place if you have mental health problems you have a mental health plan in place and they get paid a premium for doing those things so doing certain consultations will get paid a premium they all the gps do minor procedures stuff um and so they all earn a little bit extra from the procedures side of things they often do their own ultrasounds so a lot of stuff that we would classically i say we that you guys would classically manage sort of in an acute medical unit for example gets managed in the community so sort of low-risk DVT, low-risk PE will often get worked up in the community and treated in the community by GPs because there's billing codes associated with it. And so it's in their interest to do so. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, the hours are less. You live by the beach. Um, you, you're on half a million as an ITU consultant. And GPs, um, I think some GPs are earning similar to that, to be honest, from what I've heard. No, I'm sure um, they are. You know, I'm sure they definitely yeah. are. What about things like so tax true. and cost of living? Give me, give me some bad news. Is the tax high? Is the cost of living high? I, I need so, some bad news, basically, about living in Australia. Tax, tax, tax is lower. Um, I tell oh. you. <laughs> Um, so I'm just, I'm just trying to pull up the Australian tax thresholds now. Um, but it's definitely, yes, less than, um, you see in the UK, but, um, cost of living is a little bit more expensive for certain things like odd stuff, like a loaf of bread will cost you six bucks. Like it's really weird. We are one of the huge, like South Australia, particularly one of the largest grain producing areas of the world. Yet a loaf of bread is stupidly expensive. Um, and we were shocked by that initially. Um, meat is relatively cheap um, in comparison. Um, but overall, I think cost of living is a little bit more expensive. Um, so here we go. Um, so taxable thresholds in Australia. So up to 30, so tax free up to 18,000, um, 19 cents in the dollar. So 20% um, up to 37,000. Up to 90,000 is 32. Um, up to 180,000 is 37, and over 180,000 is 45. Yeah. Um, any national insurance or equivalent or stuff like that? Um, so there is, there are, there are, yeah. So there is, there are sort of pension contributions um, uh -huh. from a workforce point of view, yeah. um, but your employer contributes the same amount that you contribute automatically. Um, and so, from a public health sector point of view, your um, your, contrib your contributions to pension um, can easily be wrapped up um, very quickly. So they, so your your let me get this let me get this clear. So your initial um, pension contribution um, is um, is effectively um, paid by the employer. So that doesn't come out of your salary per se. It comes the employer contributes it. Then if you want to top up. Um, you can top up um, effectively in a tax-free, so you you can basically deduct any top up from tax. Yeah. Okay. So that's kind of similar. So so you have a nice sounding, I mean, a, a nice sounding pension to go with that pay as well. Uh, okay. So yeah. you basically you get paid more, you work less. Uh, the cost of living is slightly higher. The tax appears to be lower. You've got a nice uh, pension scheme to go with it. 
So we talked a bit about the uh, benefits of um, being an Australian doctor, but uh, famously in this country, the UK, um, we pay for almost all of our training as doctors. Um, how is that situation different in Australia? Yep. So as a full-time trainee medical officer on a dedicated training program, you get $8,500 a year. Um, now, if you're a member of the College of Surgeons, they take a lot of that in your training fees. However, from an intensive care point of view, um, it doesn't cost anywhere near that much. So I'm sitting here talking to you on a very nice MacBook Pro with a phone 11 in my hand, which has all been paid for through PD, um, because obviously those are essential items in order for me to do my work. Um, and so um, that's how we get away with it. I mean, I recruit a lot of patients to studies using an iPad Pro that I have paid for through PD, and I've got a very nice camera that I filmed some COVID videos for um, intubation and proning, um, again, paid for through PD. And so we are looked after. Um, it's very easy to pay for your flight back to Europe to go to the European conference that you want to go to. Um, and in fact, the consultants get $24,000 a year and they struggle to spend it. Wow. Um, okay. I mean, that's just a massive difference. Okay. Like when you pull up to a new placement, um, do you have to pay like 25 pounds in parking charges like you do in the NHS or if you're on call overnight, do they like uh, show you uh, a little chair in the waiting room and say, that's your, uh, welfare area. And there's a coffee machine <laughs> to get uh, a Mars bar and a coffee if you need it. Okay. So you after. Yeah, so wellness is, I mean, I don't think it's as bad an issue as we saw in the NHS, but it's getting worse um, rather than getting better. Um, and so, yes, look, you're now charged for car parking. When I first arrived, car parking was free. That's now charged for. Um, you. When you start a new job, getting car parking is now becoming a trickier task because all the car parks are full and nobody has car parking available. Um, and so there's lots of complaints from doctors who like, but I'm on call tonight. How do you expect me to get into hospital or how do you expect me to get home post a night shift? Um, this is not reasonable. Um, and so those sort of calls are starting to be sort of be a bit of an issue here. Um, from a sort of overnight work point of view, the medics on the floor don't have sort of an on-call room or anywhere to sleep. There's a bit of a mess that they can sort of sit in a chair. Um, from an ICU point of view, we have pull-out couches, um, but our night shift is 14 hours long. Um, and so it's, it's sort of understandable that that's um, a relatively sort of has, has to have some fatigue management facilities there. Um, there's, I mean, there's supposed to be hot food provided 24-7 in hospitals, the same as there is in the NHS, but they're very much in towards the model of there's a microwave and there's a vending machine um, kind of model. Um, but it, it hasn't quite hit that point yet. You can still go and get a coffee from a coffee place um, 24-7 in our hospital. Yeah, that's interesting because um, me and you are old enough uh, to remember the days. I mean, in Jersey, we had heavily subsidized uh, hospital accommodation, which was amazing. What? We had, yeah. at the weekend, uh, they made us, on Sundays, if you were on call, they made us uh, a roast. Out. Yeah, a roast. It was totally free. And yeah. uh, even the consultants would come down and it was amazing. Um, yeah. We didn't have to pay for car parking. We got helped out with the costs of training and everything. Uh, and that was our F1. And we were like, wow, working in, working in the NHS is amazing. And then bam, I mean, I went to F2 on the mainland and... Um, yeah, I mean, so what I'm saying is, you know, even in our working lives, uh, we are getting old now, mate, but uh, the erosion of our, you know, soft benefits, shall we call them, has been significant. And I think that makes a massive 
um, you know, impact on workload, morale, um, and everything because it's like you don't even respect us enough to sort us out with a car parking place, feed us when we're working, you know, incredibly long demanding shifts. So it's interesting to hear that you guys are having the same erosion of terms and conditions, certainly, but uh, your pay is, uh, yeah, more than making up for it if that's uh, possible. Yeah, okay. No. So that's really interesting. Um, and um, so I guess we should talk a bit, if you don't mind, about your personal finances, because um, you've told us a bit about how much you've been paid. Uh, and uh, I know you, so I know you won't have squandered that. You will have invested it in something. <laughs> you will have invested it in something really nice. So do you want to talk a little bit about as much yeah, as you're can, comfortable I, to share? Yeah, of course. So um, I suppose what's what sort of things so look i, I mean for, for start i spent the last four years doing a phd um which was fully funded um as in i was given a hundred thousand a year tax-free for three years worth of my phd um which is unrivaled anywhere in the world like it's crazy crazy money um and so that was obviously a help um have i squandered the money probably um i think i've so i've paid off my uk mortgage um, so there's a house in Portsmouth that sits you, you've completely cleared your UK mortgage. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, um, and, um, we, I mean, I'm sort of fortunate in the fact that I live in a house that my wife paid for. So that's, that, that sort of covers, covers me in Australia. Um, so what if we spent our money on really exploring Australia, having fun? And then the, I mean, so three years of funding worth of PhD and then unfunded for the final year. Um, and so the last year, effectively, I've been in an unfunded post where I've been working a 0.15 and contributed savings towards that. Um, I'm involved in a couple of startups, which we put a little bit of money into. Um, and so we'll see if those go anywhere. Um, and other than that, no, I've probably squandered it, Tommy. Experiences is what you've bought. And uh, buying experiences, traveling around, exploring Australia and everything. I, I've never regretted spending money on experiences. Um, okay, so that's really um, that's really interesting. So you said at the start, like you went there for a year um, and it sounded a bit uh, tricky to line up a job. If somebody's listening to this and they want to go to Australia for an F3 or just to take a gap, and by the way, I've been to New Zealand and doing an F3, well, mine was an F3 and a four, but anyway, um, <laughs> it's it's one of the best things I've done. I've never regretted it. Yes, I came back, um, but I never regretted it. And I think you know more and more people are doing it. Back when we did it, it was like, um, I remember when I said uh, at the end of F2, Everyone's like, what are you doing? I'm going to core medical training. I'm going to, you know, brain surgery. What are you doing, Tommy? I'm like, um, going to New Zealand, but I'm also going surfing in Hawaii. They're like, wow, that Dr. Perkins, he was so talented. And now he's just squandered it all away. Like doing an F3 was not normal back then. Um, yeah, yeah. So you said it was a bit tricky to line up a job uh, or whatever. Mm -hmm. Have you got any tips for somebody who's listening to this thinking, right, I'm going to yeah. go to Australia for a year. Um, how, how do they do it? Yeah, so I I would now say so Austra what Australia have done, which is similar to what the UK did, um, was sort of Australia probably ten years behind, is significantly increase the number of medical school students coming out of medical schools. So Australia historically were reliant on international medical graduates to fill a lot of their posts. Now, in theory, as of two years ago, um, they will be self sufficient in production of doctors, and so it will become harder. However, the Australian medics are much less committed to sort of working full time 
in the public system they're less committed to well actually it doesn't really they they just have an attitude of it doesn't really matter if i'm in a training post or not um whereas the push in the nhs is obviously you can't be part of that historic lost um sho tribe um and sort of you can't go around specialties trying different stuff well that sort of exists here and people do that um which means that i think that at that what we call rmo level what you refer to as f f3 f4 etc um, at that level, I think there will probably always be jobs. I suspect those jobs will exist really around the ED space or around sort of the MET team space um, and covering medical emergencies. Um, we are, all our hospitals are overrun with MER teams. Um, please, please don't go there. It's, it's not, it doesn't work. So why, why do MERS teams not work? Uh, I just, I just think they disempower hospitals. Um, so all, all sort of medic surgeons sort of lose the ability then to look after acutely unwell patients and it sort of disempowers sort of ward nurses. It disempowers, um, what we call home teams, um, to really manage sick patients, um, well. And I think that we end up doing that badly, um, because of my, but anyway, it's, that's, a, that's a pretty controversial statement to make, um, especially in Australia that's fully adopted them. Um, but what does it mean? It means that Australians don't really want to be doing these jobs. Um, they don't like sort of being the person holding a pager, running around the hospital, looking after sick patients, because ultimately there's no long-term money in that. Um, and they, I think they're, they're quite financially focused um, from a professional point of view. And so they all want to go off and become dermatologists, ophthalmologists, surgeons, um, and so they all focused on, well, actually, okay, I can do a small amount of public, but I'm really focusing on what I can earn in the private sector. Yeah. So resuscitating people and saving lives doesn't make money. And so perhaps yeah. controversially, that may be why they're less interested in it. That's controversial. Uh, shall we move on to something less controversial? So, you know, you, you obviously just went to Australia for a year and you didn't intend to stay, but I, I'm getting an idea of why you have stayed, of course. But yep. is there... You, you said about the distance to family as being a downside at the start, and that's definitely something that I can sympathise, having lived with in New Zealand in New Zealand for a bit, to doing my F three and four. But um, is there kind of um, give me some sort of downsides and things that would if you would make you come back to the UK, if any? Yeah. Okay. So I mean, in when was it was in July of this year, my grandparents died within thirty six hours of each other, non COVID related. Sorry to hear that. Mate. I didn't realise that. That's okay. Um, but kind of romantic in the fact that after 69 years of marriage that they obviously couldn't be apart from each other. I genuinely think my um, my grandfather died of Takotsubo, um, having been told that my grandmother was palliative, having fallen over with a subdural. Um, and he, he went first and she went the following night, really. Um, and so because of COVID, I couldn't get home. Um, and that's been tremendously difficult. Um, not being able to go to funerals. Um, so those kind of things have been hard. Yeah. Um, I miss my nephews, um, miss seeing them grow up um, and watching that on Skype isn't quite the same. Yeah. Um, and sort of that, I mean, it's all very nice that your parents, mother-in-law, um, whatever, they come for three months at a time and it's lovely to see them, but having your mother-in-law um, or indeed my mother, please mom, don't listen to this, um, living, living with for th three months can be a challenge. Um, not my mum; she doesn't come for three months. But um, 
but it and it's and like it's great to have the support but you can you can see that that poses challenges yeah you're getting diplomatic in your old age with that last statement about your mother <laughs> your mother-in-law uh the uh, the sam Clark that i knew 12 years ago would not have been that diplomatic so this is good um <laughs> I mean, you also, we talked a bit about this before, um, you have to watch uh, Australian rules football and not rugby, is this right? Uh, yeah, so South Australians, they AFL focused, um, and so that literally you can be watching State of Origin and they'll cut to the footy show halfway through and then they'll go back to the second half of State of Origin. Um, and so obviously I came over here as sort of a major rugby fan having played sort of for Jersey and um, in gone back to Union, played GB students in league. Um, and so was very passionate about my league, loved my union, looked forward to coming to Australia um, to watch and be involved in more rugby. And it really just doesn't exist here. Um, it's, it's just, it's just the Eastern seaboard really. That's, um, that's rugby focused and nowhere else really cares about it. If it makes you feel any, yeah, if it makes you feel any better, a friend of mine is football mad and he moved to Wales and uh, literally he's, just kicking, <laughs> he's kicking a ball against the wall on his own, right? Because no one wants to play football. Everyone's playing rugby. So yeah, uh, hopefully that makes you feel <laughs> a bit better. Okay. I mean, this has been super interesting. I know so many people think about doing an F3 and then maybe don't, but I think my message is just just do it. You'll never regret it. Um, and listening to Sam talk about his life in Australia today, it sounds uh, amazing. Um, so, you know, is there anything that the that we could do to tempt you back to this country? Um, so I, I, I honestly think that we will come back to the UK at some point. Uh-huh. Um, the difficulty for me was I lost pay protection. So in the first 12 months that I was here, in fact, by the time we hit 18 months in here, um, the NHS had made the decision to pay protect doctors who are currently in post, um, which meant that if I came back to the UK, I wouldn't have been pay protected and would have effectively gone back to F1 um, salaries. It seemed to work out to me. Um, and so it became a financial, like, pointless exercise to come back what would tempt me back um look i'm transitioning into medical administration um and so i suspect i will come back to medical management roles um within the nhs with the experience of having worked in the australian system and i suspect those roles will tempt and tempt me back um but um what could the nhs do to tempt me back um i think they just have to treat doctors better and pay them better um they have to realize that there is an international market and that they have to be competing um, for medics within that international market, um, especially within the English speaking um, medical market, which is obviously America, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. Um, And so the NHS is at risk of losing a huge amount of doctors to those systems. And in fact, I work with a lot of doctors from those systems um, here, Um, loads of Irish, loads of Brits, um, and that's a huge detriment to to the to the British public, and I think that that's that's going to be be a huge problem for the NHS going forward unless they can sort it out. Yeah, I think uh, that's really really wise words there. I, th- I like the way you said that as well. That the NHS needs to treat be- 
doctors better and pay them better in that order, you know, treat them mm. better. Um, it's just tiny little things that they could do to treat doctors better, which would make a massive difference. And it's not really all about the pay. It's uh, a lot about the order that you said it in, treat better, pay better. Okay, great. This has been so good to catch up with you. Uh, you're a busy man and it's getting late in Australia now. So I know we've got to wrap up. So uh, let's rewind to 2008. We've just landed in Jersey together. Um, so you could tell your F1 self something that you've learned uh, now. What would it be? So a very good question. Um, what would I tell myself? Um, thanks. Put me on the spot. Um, probably to be less concerned about career progression than I was then. Um, yeah. but I think that being on the rat race of a training program is made out to be much more important than it is. Um, and whatever you are doing, you'll be picking up experiences um, that will be unrivaled um, when it comes to a consultant interview or when it comes to working as a boss further down the line. Um, I don't think that the, the rat race of training makes for a better health service provision because you become super specialized super early. Um, and I think getting those extra experiences, working in different healthcare systems, understanding how things are done differently elsewhere is vitally important. Yeah, I think that's really, really wise words to your F1 self there. And if you are on F1, uh, definitely, uh, I would agree with what Sam said there. You know, there's a lot of jam tomorrow in medicine. By that, I mean, go to med school, it's going to be hard, but then you become a doctor. Do F1, F2, uh, it's going to be hard, but then you become a registrar. Do a registrar. And, and then, you know, 12 years of your life later, you've been on this rat race of training, too scared to jump off and just go to Australia for an F3 like you did or, or whatever. Um, it, there's a lot of jam tomorrow. You, you've got to enjoy your medicine and just do what you want to do. And it may feel like the system has pushed you to follow a very defined career path. But actually, there's loads of people out there who are consultants and GPs now who have followed a very unusual career path. And uh, I think certainly for me, I gained so much by taking a slightly convoluted route, uh, exactly what you just said. So it was so good to catch up with you today. Um, as I said, it's, it's probably getting past your bedtime or you've at least got to go and watch some Australian rules uh, football. Um, so thanks so much for your time and wise words and uh, look forward to catching up with you soon and take care of yourself in the middle of this pandemic. Thanks. Cheers, Tommy. Good to take, chat. Take care, mate.